Welcome to the Pre-Health Pod. My name is Lexi. And I'm Sarah. And we're a podcast by students for students who have been through undergrad, are going through the application processes, and are here to meet you wherever you are. We're so excited to be back. Yay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We missed you guys. <laughs> One week. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, we had yeah. a really good time recording this episode. We spoke a lot about global health, medical anthropology, pediatrics, oncology, MD, PhD programs. Honestly, guys, we talked about so much stuff. I can't believe we managed to fit it into one episode. So <laughs> buckle yeah, this up. This is a longer one. <laughs> but I no, think but... you'll really enjoy it. And honestly, I found it to be really inspiring. Definitely. Andres Diaz is am- amazing. He's just totally fired me up and... You'll listen to this, but he's starting to make me realize maybe I should go into a certain type of specialty. He's, yeah. I feel like we should door. start a movement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as soon as you asked him, you guys won't get this, but as soon as you asked him if he had started a movement yet, I thought to myself, she's going to join his movement because if there's one thing Lexi <laughs> loves, it is movement. Movement, yes. profits change volunteering she jumps on all of that I, I literally was way, like what's the, the name second you said it I was like she's brainstorming she's brainstorming right now what is our next project <laughs> we need a logo we need a meta description for our website <laughs> uh, hey I'm the logo girl just let me know what color you want <laughs> oh my god yeah so well, yeah any actually PSA if you're a pre-all student out there and you want to start a movement or something email Lexi email me we can make it happen I'm serious we have a lot of she resources She's really serious at the national pre-health community and we can help you anyway yeah and we'll be happy <laughs> too but let's jump in real quick and talk about our week or uh, woo. day I don't know how are you what's going on I know you have your secondaries going on fill me yeah. in where are we at a lot of emotions but it's kind of exciting so June 30th last week for at the time of recording this or whatever, I just got like three or four secondaries in my inbox. And then every day since then, it's been like a new one that pops up after I finish one. So it's truly endless. A lot of feelings. I felt a little overwhelmed and I started to get a little burned and I was really concerned. So I texted my therapist and I was like, Hey, you free tomorrow? <laughs> and PSA, get a therapist. So we talked about it, really <laughs> sorted through my priorities. And the secondary process is a lot. I'll explain it for you guys. Each school sends its own set of essays to write about, tailored to their school, whether why our school, what are the programs that are school that are really interesting to you, or more generic questions like explain who you are and your identity, how you embrace diversity, things like that. And There's a lot of questions that are very detailed and you kind of have to give like a very lengthy response to each essay question. So it's a lot of hard work and I did pre-write some of them, but I didn't realize, you know, you never know until you actually get the secondaries, how much work it actually is. So I am feeling, yeah, quite overwhelmed, but I did submit one secondary so far and I'm really happy about that, but I have like six more. (laughs) You can do it. I believe in you. 
anyone can do it, Lexi can. Oh, well, so can you listeners. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The one thing though, I'm just so shocked by, I don't know why I didn't know this is I paid for each school when I submitted my primary, right? So about a hundred bucks per school. I applied to 23 schools on my primary application. I have to do it again for each secondary essay I submit. Yeah. You didn't know like, that? No. Well, I guess I just didn't realize it. Oh, when it no. asked me for a hundred bucks, I was like, oh, that's like half my paycheck. Like again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, PA school does that the same way too. And it's like $60, $90, $120, $40. So some of the schools barely charge anything for secondary. Some of them charge way lots of money and some right. of them don't charge anything at all. So you don't really know how to save up for applying to PA school. Yeah. It's hard. You have to oversave, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I just want to say to everyone out there who's struggling financially and going through this process, you know, you're not alone. There's a lot of students, including myself. I independently finance all of my medical school applications. It's really difficult. And I don't think it's fair how much they nickel and dime you. I think that's something we need to change in the medical school admissions process and maybe PAs too, is just decrease the cost, try everything we can to ensure that everybody has a fair chance of applying. That's my piece. But secondaries, they're good. I have to balance thinking about the application process as an exciting thing, not something that's just a ton of work. It's like, oh my gosh, applying to the next phase of my life, what I've been wanting to do since I was a kid, be a doctor, a healer, as we'll talk about later in the episode. And just realizing that can really help you avoid burnout and has really helped me like, okay, I am actually passionate about talking about why I want to go into this medical school. So let me think about it that way instead of feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. Yeah. Thank you. How was your week? It's been a week. Um, <laughs> oh, you know what? Okay. So we're recording this the week of the 4th of July. So I just have to let you all know that I became a real Floridian this week not because I saw an alligator because I did not. No comment. <laughs> but what I did do is I went to Disney World for the 4th of July. Yes. Yeah, I. Oh, I my mean, God. I've been in the past. It was a couple of years ago, but I wasn't living here. But let me tell you the privilege of driving 40 minutes to Disney World and then just parking and going and having a party and then when I was tired and too hot I just drove home and then I was home and I took a nap holy privilege Sarah tell me when you entered Disney the arch did you honk no am I supposed to then it was cursed (laughs) every time you enter Disney property like I don't know if you know, there's a welcome sign that says Wal- yeah. welcome to Walt Disney World. You have to honk. What? Yeah, you honk, go, yeah. Bah, bah, bah. I'm in It's just a Florida native thing. Maybe you're not truly Florida native yet. Okay, I have to go again. <laughs> <laughs> Every Floridian knows this. Oh, and I got my Florida driver's license, guys. It Yay. took six hours of sitting in the DMV. <laughs> <laughs> but I did get my Florida driver's license. So I'm official and don't talk to nice. me about alligators. <laughs> <laughs> Good 
Congratulations. Thank That's you. That's awesome. Yeah. The Florida DMV is brutal. They, I had a friend who like failed her first license sure exam because mm-hmm. she did a three point turn and accidentally touched the grass a little bit and they <laughs> failed her for that. <laughs> they just needed to mow. I know. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But yeah, how's my week? Still waiting to hear from PA schools. I know it's not supposed to be until August, but I was really hoping I'd hear from someone by now. But yeah, same old, same old over here. So I guess we'll just get to it and let you listen to our episode. We really hope you like it as much as we did. We had a great time recording it. And I really hope that you get the same takeaways from it that we did. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode with a very special guest speaker, Andres Diaz. Andres was born in Medellin, Colombia, and migrated with his family to the United States at the age of 11. Andres originally wanted to pursue a career in the culinary arts and became a chef. However, his community college experience, and in particular, his coursework in medical humanities, changed the trajectory of his life. Andres was moved by the study of medicine through a humanities and social science lens and decided to pursue a career in medicine. Currently, Andres is completing an MD-PhD dual degree program at the University of Arizona. His research focuses on harnessing cellular immune therapies to fight neuroblastoma and other pediatric solid tumors. He plans to pursue a career in pediatric oncology and specialize in bone marrow transplantation. Adjacent to his research and clinical interests, Andres has a passion for addressing global pediatric cancer care disparities and plans to incorporate this work into his future research and clinical practice. Please welcome Andres. Thank you so much for joining us. Guys, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's such we're a pleasure. Excited. No, I'm so glad you were able to join us. And if you want, you can just take a minute now. Tell us more about yourself and your pathway to medicine. Oh, gosh. You get this question in your application cycle all the time, <laughs> and you're never ready for it. I think you buy your best. So like you mentioned, I'm originally from Colombia. I migrated to the United States when I was 11. Wow. Um, we migrated originally to Miami and then moved to a small little town in Florida called Sarasota. It's very tiny. It's south of Tampa. We, we call it God's waiting room. Uh, there's, a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of snowbirds in Sarasota. You know, after that, I started my education there. At the time, I was here on a green card. So I really, really didn't have documentation that would allow me to pursue higher education, which is why, as you mentioned, I was interested in becoming a chef. I, yeah. I, love, I love Chopped, Iron Chef. I grew up on all of those shows. And I really didn't think I had a shot at going to college because of my uh, legal status. So I, after graduating, I worked at a restaurant for a couple of years. My legal status was secured and I was able to apply to colleges. And I ended up going to Valencia Community College in Orlando. Oh, my God. I, yeah. So I'm from Orlando. I think you're from Orlando too, right? Like yeah. Valencia. I took classes at Valencia too. Yeah. So yeah. That's so hilarious. I, That's really cool. I owe Valencia a lot because they're the only school that was willing to like look the other way and let me in. And I originally wanted to do business so I could own a restaurant. And then I took a medical anthropology, medical humanities class called the human form. And oh, wow. that changed everything. And now it, it was very unexpected. I never thought I could have been a physician. There's really no physicians in my family. But yeah. that class really really impacted me and it really 
kind of set the stage for pursuing medicine. So after th- taking those classes, I had a terrible GPA, yeah. but I transferred to the University of Central Florida. I did a dual major there in biomedical sciences and biotechnology. Wow. I thought the sciences were very cool. Uh, but during that time, I did a medical anthropology as well, which is like a big thing I try to push all pre-meds to do if they get a chance. And pre-health students take yeah. one medical anthropology or medical sociology class. It puts medicine in a completely different stage. This just gives you a completely different perspective about what medicine is for people, what it represents. I owe a lot of my continued devotion to medicine to my medical anthropology training. Yeah, that's amazing. What is medical anthropology? Like if you could describe it in a couple sentences. I am glad you asked. Anthropology (laughs) is the study of humans, how humans interact with humans. It's really just the study of our species. Medical anthropology is a subsection of anthropology studies specifically how humans interact with medical knowledge, medical systems, medicine in general. So how do we interact with medicine? It is a social science, but it's very much qualitative by nature. It's very academic. Uh, And essentially what you're looking in, in medical anthropology is really dissecting cultural, societal, economic factors that impact access to medicine perceptions about medicine, misinformation. I know you guys had an episode not too long ago about misinformation in medicine. Yeah. And then how all of these factors impact how we engage with the medical system and how we are also often disenfranchised by the medical system. It's an amazing. And really the people in the forefront of it are people like Dr. Seth Holmes, Dr. Paul Farmer, may he rest in power, Nancy Shepard Hughes, these are people who really shaped completely why I'm even in this field. It's a remarkable field, and I really recommend it. At least one class in it. It really will change your perspective on medicine. I agree with you so much. Lexi, I don't know if you took any medical anthropology classes at ASU, but ASU has a uh, whole <laughs> subdivision dedicated to medical anthropology. We do? Yeah. So when I was doing my undergrad, I realized I really didn't like doing all of the nitty gritty biology classes. And it wasn't because I don't like science, but it was because I found medical anthropology more interesting. So I found every possible way I could incorporate medical anthropology into my degree path. And I'm so glad I did. I took it even farther on accident because I ended up working at an ER on the Indian reservation. And so at the same time I was taking classes on Native American traditional healing practices, I was seeing patients who were actually practicing these things and coming to our ER as a last resort. It just, it's insane. It's so cool. And I love the contrast between biomedicine and traditional medical practices and how they can go hand in hand. Oh my gosh, I could go on and on about this topic. This Same. is dangerous. <laughs> no, I agree, Sarah. I agree. It's it really is fascinating. And you know, to your point about the contrast between biomedical sciences and traditional practices for many people, I think one of the misconceptions about these two fields is that they can never be together. And medical anthropology just really makes it a point to prove that they can't be together. And it is when you bring these two fields together that you can really take care of people because medicine, it is obviously founded on the sciences and evidence-based medicine, but at its core is a social science. 
It's yeah. a sign. It is a humanity. It's, it's a practice of people. And if you forget about that, and I'm sure you guys know this, you're not going to be a good healer because that's yeah. what you're trying to be in the end. It's a healer. Healer. Yes. yes. That's my favorite word. I feel like that's a word <laughs> that we forget as pre-med students. We're not becoming doctors. We're not becoming PAs. We're not becoming nurses. We are healers. You're yes. trying yeah. to become a healer. And you can't heal people without understanding all of their cultural diversities and where their like home base is. Mm -hmm. What do they think about at home about medicine? And especially with the pandemic coming out of that, with all of the mistrust in the world, I think this is like the most important time to start kind of like forcing people take those medical anthropology classes. (laughs) It should be, I really think it should be more incorporated into medical school, into PA school, these are so important. It's like such an important topic for us to understand. I would watch my ER providers treating people and I would just like, they're, they don't get this. They're not understanding what you're saying. They don't care. They disagree with you. We have to reframe the way that you're trying to educate them about their health so that they feel passionate about it too. Otherwise they're not going to care. And the other thing that I want to say for our listeners real quick, before I forget, A great way of looking at traditional medicine and biomedicine is thinking about a midwife. A midwife is like one of the most simple ways to look at it because midwives are being incorporated into biomedicine every day now. Mm -hmm. Um, We have traditional birth attendants who would help women have their children at home. We have midwives who are almost turning into a stepping stone between having your child at home and having your child in a hospital because they can come to your house, but they also can meet you at the hospital. And that's a kind of a good way to look at it and see the differences there. Cause I know a lot of us know more about midwives than we do. I don't know, like the medicine man. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me. So I just got secondaries and A lot of the questions, thank you so much, you know, just being flooded in my inbox, very fun, but (laughs) I'm not surprised the types of questions that they're asking me, it's not relevant to like my specific research experience or like the technical details or the biomedical sciences of it. It's the humanistic side. It's asking me about what community identify and what brings me to that, like fulfilling nature of medicine and how I care for patients and you know, in my current experiences, but a lot of the same questions are like, who are you as a person? What is your identity and how has your identity shaped your passion for medicine and caring for others? And I honestly really love that for that medical schools are asking us that because it's such an, an important question to ask and verify that our students are understanding in medical school. I completely agree. And it's funny because, I mean, you're talking to someone who's in a biomedical heavy basic biology phd program and let's talk about that (laughs) i love that but like i'm always kind of led by the humanities it makes my research better it just does yeah i relate to that because so your work is in pediatric oncology and your specific research focus you know on cellular immune therapies is quite specific and quite different from the humanities. I relate, I did research in molecular biology, specifically like certain bacterial systems and specifically tuberculosis. And it was really difficult to explain this to people outside of simply my research project. It didn't have to be someone who wasn't a scientist, even like other scientists who just weren't familiar. I had to learn how to explain to them at the high school level. So, you know, I'd love to ask you, where are you in your track currently in MD-PhD? 
Yeah, of course. So I completed my first two years of pre-clerkship curriculum. So my first and second uh, year of medicine, I took step one, which is one of the first licensing exams you need to Congratulations. Take. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's been a while, but I still get PTSD about it. So yeah, <laughs> I completed uh, step one. And now I, in August, I will start my second year of my PhD. So I've already completed one year of my PhD curriculum and I'm, I'm going to start my second year. Awesome. That's awesome. And I would love to learn a little bit more about your research project. If you could explain it to us yeah, no. outside of the, <laughs> no, outside of lo- you know, I'd I love would, to hear. I would love to No, Yeah. So pediatric solid tumors are tumors that are often difficult to treat because uh, these tumors are oft, often have the ability to evade the immune system. We mm. call this immune evasion or immune editing. So they're very good at avoiding the immune system. So what our group is currently looking at is using a collection of dr- drugs called histone deacetylase inhibitors. They're epigenetic drugs. And what these drugs can do is they can target a solid tumor and change its phenotype. So it starts expressing things that will bring the immune system to it. Oh, so that's gen- cool. Yeah, generally these solid <laughs> tumors are not seen by the immune system, but if we can treat them with these HDACs, uh, these HDAC inhibitors, then we can make them visible to the immune system. And then what we do on top of that is we essentially would pre-treat the tumor with these medications, and then we would infuse the patients, in, in this case, our current model, with a group of cells called gamma delta T cells. So these are immune cells that can be harvested from donors. They can be collected, they can be treated, and then they can be infused into a patient. And then these tumors will be susceptible to these immune cells. One, because these immune cells are really good at finding these tumors, but two, because of that drug pretreatment we did prior, that will make them more susceptible to the immune system generally. In pediatric solid tumors, this is a huge hurdle because for starters, not a lot of funding goes into pediatric cancer yeah. compared to adult cancer, which is a big, that's an issue in my, on my end. Uh, wow. It's also pain. kind of shocking. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. It is completely. The arguments against that are that pediatric cancer make a certain percentage of the population of cancer burden in the country. Right. The thing is, pediatric cancers in the United States and high-income countries are very curable. Mm. So on average, pediatric tumor cancers have 80% survival rates. Oh, wow. You look at some of the adult cancers, and you're really not looking at such success rates. We're doing a better job at handling pediatric cancer. Really good survival rates, really good outcomes. But you would think, because we are kind of on the precipice of really curing these cancers, that you you would... funnel funding into it. And there's a lot of reasons why, uh, but the drive hasn't been there. I know the- I have a question for you. (laughs) (laughs) This might be too broad of a question, but the reason I want to go into pediatrics is because of how resilient children are. Do you think that the reason why these pediatric cancers are such less of a risk than adult cancers because of the resiliency of children? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. So, I mean, if you've ever worked with pediatric cancer patients, uh, I mean, they are the strongest, bravest, most profound people 
that there are, and it is an absolutely so. It, it is an absolute privilege to work with them and their families. Yeah, you know, in the non-biological sense, these kiddos are the best. They just are. They teach you to be a better person. They teach yeah. you what really matters in life. They just give you perspective about what matters. On absolutely. the biological end, kind of to your question, kiddos are tough. And historic, we've been able to give children with cancer uh, pretty aggressive therapies because they bounce back really well. Obviously, wow. there's survivorship issues and later quality of life issues that might come of that. But generally, kiddos have a really resilient biology and they'll bounce back from some of the most aggressive treatments. So a, a part of it is because they're growing and they're developing and they just have the drive to grow. So they can be resilient against these treatments. The other part of it that often we don't talk about, but is equally important, is the mentality of children is different from that of adults with pediatric with malignancy with cancer. Hmm. And part of that has to do because of their innocence and their perspective, yeah. and often an optimism, whether founded or not, that really gives these kiddos a lot of hope and their families. I think that's another factor that makes pediatric oncology such a amazing, rewarding field. Absolutely. And are you wanting to become a pediatric oncologist yourself? Yeah. Yeah. No. So that's the goal. So that's the goal. Yeah. Do pediatric oncology <laughs> and then that's um, so neat. Do yeah. Like that's immunotherapy cool. and bone marrow transplantation. They're the best. Yeah. There's no better field. I'm biased. Everyone's gonna <laughs> be like, oh, surgery is great. Oh, I love IR, radiology. Pediatric oncology is the just the purest form of medicine, in my opinion. No, I agree with you. For the longest time, all I wanted to do was pediatric oncology. It wasn't until I started working in ERs, mm -hmm. especially rural ERs, that I was like, oh, I really like rural medicine and especially <laughs> rural emergency medicine. But if the ER didn't exist, that's where I would be, especially because the coolest part I that drew me to pediatric oncology besides the kids was how much you get to incorporate research into your job. Like it's yeah. not just treating patients. You're constantly doing research and finding new ways to treat things. And it's just always innovating and changing. Yeah. Oh sure. yeah. That's fascinating. I well, love Lexi's that. He's going to do surgery. So. I still have that similar passion for research and like cutting edge, innovative new ways to like, sure, you know, sure. scientific. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. <laughs> no, I wanted to ask you, I would love to touch on how you're bringing your work in the lab outside the lab into the community and even globally. We touched on this a little bit before we were on the pod, but I'd love for you to share what you're doing globally. No, I yeah, for sure. I think kind of to like amend what I told you earlier, Sarah, yes, I want to do pediatric oncology, but more specifically, I, I want to do uh, global pediatric oncology, specifically dedicating my career to addressing pediatric cancer, global disparities, global health disparities. Wow. Because I mentioned earlier in high, high income countries like the United States, the average patient with a pediatric malignancy has an 80% chance of survival. If you go to a lower middle income country, survival rates drop to 20%. You're going Ugh. from 80% to 20%. Ugh. 
that's a failure. Like we fail. Yeah. Global that's, injustice. Yeah. That's a failure of morality. Like as a people, we have failed children when that occurs. That failure is compounded by the fact that many of the medications that we use for the majority of pediatric malignancies are uh, generic medicines. Many of these medicines are designated by the World Health Organization as essential medicines, meaning that in theory, they should be more accessible that pharmaceutical companies and other entities should make these medications more accessible to, uh, to children, specifically in this case. So we have everything in our disposal to save many children with malignancy, but we are, we're not. And yes, there's many strides that have been taken and yeah. we are improving on that end. Don't get me wrong. I'm a fatal optimist. I think we can always do better, but that optimism is founded on what, where we're lacking. That's the reason I'm on this planet for. Like, I want to help be a part of addressing those disparities because those children and those communities and those families deserve that. That's the one thing they deserve the most. So with that said, my research is very biomedical and basic science, but the reason I picked that immune cell that I told you about earlier, specifically the gamma delta T cell, is because that's an immune cell that is easy to expand from donors. and the recipient of those cells does not have to match the donor. It's not that other types of transplantation where there has to be a match uh, between an immunotyping match between the donor and the recipient, or else there'll be an adverse reaction. With these cells, in theory, and in practice to some extent, anybody can donate these cells to anybody, which means that these cells have a good potential of having a global health applicability and being applicable in low resource settings. So can we take these cells, make them an off-the-shelf product? That's the technical term. Can we transform them into an off-the-shelf product? And then can we make these therapies available to people worldwide? That's what I believe we can do. And a lot of the work that I'm doing is trying to incorporate it into that system. More locally, our lab does a lot of clinical trials with the community and with children. And one trial that we're currently working on is the role of exercise to improve patient outcomes after bone marrow transplants. So we'll be running around the hospital with the kiddos, like doing exercises and like walking up and down the aisles and the halls, counting their steps and seeing how fast they're walking. Uh, (laughs) And that's one of the projects we're working on, translating the science to the bedside specifically for children. Andres, you're firing me up. Everything yeah, you talk about, like the way you talk about it, the passion and fire you have for this. It's like, oh my gosh, now I'm like, really, I want to, I care about this. So what can we do? Like, what can I do well, to actually, make this accessible? Yeah. What is the issue here? Like, is it, is it a money thing? Do we just need more funding to go everywhere so we can get these type of things available worldwide? Or is this more of a like skill thing where we need more skilled doctors in these areas? What is the biggest issue with this? I mean, the the reality is that these issues are multifaceted. Yeah. Access to care is a big issue. So if we're talking global, let's just take like global cancer care disparities. Again, I am a graduate student who's very passionate about this. (laughs) I am not yet an expert, but I have very strong (laughs) opinions based on what my mentors have hammered down on me and all the medical anthropology stuff. So yeah, access to care is a huge one. The thing about access to care is treating cancer is specialized in, in many ways. Getting 
generating or constructing cancer centers, regional cancer centers in countries that often only have one hospital that treats all the children with cancer would be a step towards increasing access to care. It would also improve one of the second issues with pediatric cancer globally is delayed diagnosis. So because there's no access to care, a lot of these kiddos are diagnosed with their malignancy at advanced stage. That is Mm -hmm. much more difficult to treat, whereas if they would have been diagnosed a lot earlier, the treatment would have been much more feasible, much less aggressive, and much more successful. So it all compounds. Delayed access to care equals delayed diagnosis. Also, the other thing that we often, there's two things that we often don't think about. Well, I'll start with research. A lot of research doesn't fully represent the populations that are experiencing that disease. And unfortunately, children worldwide are one of the hidden population that doesn't get considered in clinical trials. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to incorporate children into clinical trials. Some would argue that it's too difficult and it's leading to delays in development of new medications and new treatment protocols. So oh, really, that's interesting. Yeah. So that's a big issue. And there's a lot of groups out there, many of which are led by pediatric oncologists and pediatric uh, pediatric cancer patients and such, trying to push for increased access to clinical trials for children. Now, I understand why there are some reservations about that because we want to protect children, but in doing, by being overprotective, we're actually hurting many children by not opening up clinical trials. And then, you know, another issue, which a lot of pediatric oncologists maybe sometimes don't like talking about is palliative care for mm-hmm. pediatric cancer patients. Yeah. Palliative care is a dignity of life profession. It yeah. exemplifies that we all have a right to die with dignity and comfort. And this also applies to children. And we often don't want to have that conversation. Right. But the reality is that some of these children succumb to their disease. We fail them with our therapies or they succumb to their disease and it is our duty to also make palliative care accessible to these patients because everyone deserves to die with dignity. So that's another issue that still to kind of bring up more, all of these things. Absolutely. Um, very multifaceted. Funding is sometimes an issue. I'm, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but a lot of like cancer funding is comes from private institutions or from like uh, philanthropic endeavors. Yeah, the, yeah. the government obviously funds pediatric cancer research, but in comparison to adult cancer, it's not the same. I couldn't give you oh, wow. the raw numbers right now, but it's it's magnitudes lower. Yeah, yeah. Are you? But we're doing you, better. So. No, yeah. I, Optimism, guys. We're, we're doing better. No, listen. There's people like you out there, so the world is fortunate to have you. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Have you started a movement yet? I'm like waiting for this. <laughs> Oh, I mean, there's a lot of people like me. I okay, mean, I have pleasure and honor to work with some physicians who are fully as angry and optimistic about this work. Uh, so some people in St. Jude's, Dr. Catherine Lamb, mm-hmm. my PI here at the University of Arizona, Dr. Emmanuel Katsanis, uh, also Dr. Boris uh, Lee Baker, and uh, Dr. Paul Farmer, which is a former mentor of mine. You know, wow. these are all people who are really passionate about global health equity. I'm blessed to have had them and have them in my life to help guide me. Also, there's a lot of students who are very angry and optimistic about this stuff as well. I think it's a balance, to be honest, Alexi. I think there's a certain humility to understand the complexity of the disease 
and not only the complex biology of the disease, but also the complex social, economic, cultural, psychological factors that are so crucial to understanding this disease. So I think when starting a movement to really get people riled up about this, having a really strong foundation of what the disease is and how it manifests and how we should address it in different countries is really important. But don't don't you worry, we're getting there. <laughs> a little bit of training, a little bit more gathering of folks. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's the goal, man. There's There's a lot of kiddos who need our help and we have the responsibility to do something. Does this project tie in to why you're an editor for The New Physician? And for those who don't know, feel free to explain what that is. Yeah, no. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. So I'm currently serving as the chief editor, student editor of the New Physician Magazine. Uh, This is the official magazine of the American Medical Student Association. So one of my biggest passions on top of my my passion for pediatric oncology is writing, specifically non-academic writing. Um, Yeah. Again, I'm a PhD, so academic writing is bread and butter, like what we do all the time. But I really have a strong, strong passion for non-academic writing because I see it as maybe more important than academic writing, right? It it plays a crucial role in disseminating information, in disseminating feelings, in disseminating why these things matter beyond beyond what academia has to offer, right? And it takes different forms. And my role as chief editor of the magazine of the new physician is to give pre-medical students, pre-health students, and early career physicians an opportunity to use their non-academic writing prowess and interest and use their voice to write, to express an emotion, to fight for a cause that they care about, to inform a population about something that's important to them or that's important to their community. My work as as chief editor for the new physician is really intertwined with like all of these non-academic aspects of why I want to pursue pediatric oncology. Yeah. Because it's not just a science, it's also like informing people, connecting with people, learning people's uh, illness narrative, their story. And I love working with the new physician. I would recommend everybody submit if you're a pre-health or I want to. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'll share the information with you guys to, to disseminate. Um, yes, definitely. We'll include it in our podcast notes and on our Instagram too, for all of you to see the new physician magazine. Um, Andres, I'm definitely going to be reaching out to you after this. I have a story I want to share. <laughs> no, no. That's why I got involved with that jobs because of things like that. Everybody has so much to say. And just lastly, to that point, to the listeners, your voice matters. Yeah, I don't care if you're a pre-health student, if you're a pre-med student, if you're currently a medical student, you are in a position that you have, you're in a position of privilege, but you're also in a position where you have the opportunity to really share what it's like to be a student, the difficulties of entering medical school, what you see as a medical student as obstacles for improved care for patients. You really are in a unique position to use your voice and don't think that you are not. You really are. I really um, yeah. encourage you to use your voice. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. Especially for the pre-health students. Like yes. even if you're not in medical school yet, an applicant, a reapplicant, or PA school, like your voice is so important. And you've worked in clinical settings, you've shadowed, you've you've seen the healthcare community and share with your family, share with your community what's important to you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Well, I think that's a good opportunity to transition to our little game we have prepared that we do every episode. I don't know if our listeners love it, but (laughs) (laughs) this one is actually different, you guys. And yes, I love doing this. So we're going to keep doing it forever. So sorry if you don't like it. (laughs) Um, But we're going to play two truths and a lie relevant in the medical, pre-medical college realm. In a way, it's just getting to know us. (laughs) Pretty much. So we've all prepared two truths and a lie. Who should go first? I don't know. I think you should like. All right. First, number one, I am thinking of running for office one day. Number two, I'm only taking one gap year. Number three, I rescheduled my MCAT a whole year later. So I had like two MCAT test dates. Really, I had like, you know, I don't know. I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to answer. I know, Sarah, you like know my inner. I like know this. (laughs) Okay. I, two truths. You are taking more than one gap year and you want to run for office. And then your. What's the lie, I guess? The lie is you moved your MCAT a year, MCAT test date a year. No, that's true. Okay. Yeah. I rescheduled my MCAT. So I'll go through them. I'm thinking of running for office one day. Yeah, that's true. I shadowed Dr. Shaw, a representative at the Arizona House of Representatives, and he inspired me so much. He's so cool. (laughs) He's an ER physician at the Mayo Clinic and part-time, like he still practices and also is at the House of Representatives. And I went to this like ED doc day where we spoke with current legislators, representatives, and senators on important bills regarding like medical education. One of them was regarding international medical graduates, giving them provisional licenses without a postgraduate training program. And that was a huge problem posed by our medical community. (laughs) And so we went there and this actually ties into our conversation. They gave me a voice, even though I wasn't accepted into medical school, they were like, Alexia, please share everything you're going through as a pre-med student applying to medical school, all the barriers that you have to face and explain to these legislators why this bill would pose a problem. Another thing that they were hoping to do was like to get NPs and PAs to address the same level of care as doctors, like the higher acuity. And this all revolves around fixing the shortage of doctors in Arizona but we're not talking about opening residency spots. So we're like, instead of trying to give more MPs and PAs more roles and like more responsibilities and international medical graduates, why don't we fix our current problem in the Arizona community and get more residency spots available? So that's what I was doing there. Sorry to go on a tangent. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I'm currently training in Arizona. That's an issue. We need more physicians here. So yeah. we need more opportunities for physicians to train more so they can live in Arizona and take care of our communities. Yeah. Instead of like hiring internationally. (laughs) Yeah. I am taking two gap years. So this past year is my first gap year. I took the MCAT and then it's interesting because applying for medical school is like a whole year. So it doesn't feel like a gap year because it's a lot of work applying for medical school. Right. On top of my other full-time job. <laughs> oh gosh. And then yeah, I rescheduled my MCAT like 
several times, one of which was like a whole year later. Oh no, the best of luck. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I already did it. This was like a few years ago. <laughs> Mine will, my two truths and a lie will go along with that last one. Please, you'll see. Oh, sweet. Um, do you want to go next? No, Sarah, you go first. Okay. Oh, okay. Lexi, you might know the answers to these. I don't know. I made them a little tricky. Okay. <laughs> Ooh. So my first one, I have 36 screws in my face from cosmetic surgery. My second one, I broke my wrist in three places after dropping a pioneer wagon on top of it. How many? Sorry? I broke my wrist in three places. What? Oh, gosh. <laughs> and my last one, I have two rods in my lower leg from an ATV accident when I was a teenager. These okay, I, actually, I can't tell if these are all real. I just don't know any of these. What? How did you get injured so many times? Did I? <laughs> well, I mean, at least two of these, you got injured. The first one has to be a lie. What? There's not the cosmetic surgery. The 36 screws in your face. Uh-huh. I feel like you could see that, right? Well, yeah, they're, they're really good. Right? It's well, like how small? They pretty tiny. Okay. So I think you broke your wrist in three spots and you have two rods from, from your injury. And okay. I don't think you have 36 surgical screws on your face. Yeah. What do you think, Lexi? No, I, I agree with Andre. You agree? But you're smiling, so I'm You're both wrong. No way. (laughs) I have 36 screws, six plates, and three rods in my face from double jaw surgery when I was 17. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. It is technically considered cosmetic surgery. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, I was having issues keeping my airway open, but they still called it cosmetic surgery. So, a hundred grand later, (laughs) we fixed my face. And then the other one that's true is I broke my wrist in three places. I grew up Mormon and they do this thing called Trek. You like push a pioneer wagon around. It's a little Mm -hmm. weird. We won't go into it, but (laughs) I'm going to Google it. I'm going to (laughs) Google it. I dropped the wagon base on my arm when we were lifting it onto a trailer to go home and it just like smashed my wrist and three little breaks, but it's fine now. And I got really lucky. I didn't have to get any surgery. It just kind of fixed itself because I didn't go to a doctor for three days because I was on that thing called Trek, but we survived. Wow. I don't ride ATVs. My mother wouldn't let us growing up. She uh, said yeah. ATVs are like the most dangerous thing in the world. So we weren't allowed to ride ATVs. Wear a helmet. Wear a helmet. Yeah. Oh my ATVs God. are super fun, but they a little sketch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've seen for... so many ER accidents oh, from ATV. Oh my god! I know. Now I'm like, yeah, mom, you were right. <laughs> Sarah, you're in Florida, right? Yeah, and which uh, is so crazy. <laughs> yeah, so I've lived in both of these states, and all I see yeah. is ATV and... injuries. So we all Everywhere. have lived in Florida and Arizona. Yeah, I lived oh, in, which yeah. is just kind of crazy. Uh, <laughs> Arizona is the Florida of the West, and. Florida. Yeah. Okay. Side note, my first week I moved to Arizona ever, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a Florida girl living in an Arizona world. And I do not kid you. I opened up my Instagram app and I had an ad pop up for a hoodie with the Arizona state. 
in the Florida state in the Arizona state. And it was captioned Florida girl in an Arizona world. And I was just floored. <laughs> I have a screenshot of it. <laughs> I, I feel like either they're Your listening, phone to, listen you. to you. Yeah, they're listening yeah. <laughs> to you or a lot of people from Arizona go to Florida and vice versa. Maybe. Why? I don't know. The heat, maybe? It's we like, like to I, switch it up. Humid to dry. To switch up the mm-hmm. way we melt. Yeah, we're melting regardless. Just yeah. different flavors. <laughs> different flavors. <laughs> All right, right. Andres, your turn. Okay. Oh, sorry. I was an Orgo teaching assistant for three years. Uh I took the MCAT three times. And I worked in Haiti on and off for five years. You worked in what? I worked in the country of Haiti on and off for five years. Oh, wow. This is hard. Uh, I vote Orgo's alive because everybody hates Orgo. And so why would you be a TA? I TA'd Orgo. Oh, I like Orgo. Uh-huh. So maybe. <laughs> well, other people, I don't know. I didn't like Orgo, but I liked TAing it, which is weird. Maybe because I wasn't being graded. I think you're lying about Orgo, though, because how did you do three years? I was only allowed to do two. Oh, da, da, da. Oh. So that, that's the flaw I'm poking a hole through. I don't know though. No, that, that, that's a good point. And you're right. Yeah, you're both right. I actually had to uh, retake Orgo. What I took Orgo twice. So Orgo sucks. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed it. Kept missing the homeworks. Listeners, <laughs> if you're listening, do Me. your homework. Please do Get your homework, homework done. Do your homework done. Um, I liked organic chemistry too. It's an interesting topic. It's just hard. Yeah, I took tough. it during COVID. It was terrible. Oh, oh, gosh. But then I went back and taught it as a TA, and I was like, this all makes sense now. <laughs> a, a different take on chemistry. I like the shapes. Yeah. yeah. I was more visual, even though I had to retake it. But we don't, yeah. Study hard, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did take the MCAT three times. Wow. I always tell pre-med students, like. It's okay. You, you can do it. Like, Yeah, yeah. If, if and I he's going to be an MD, PhD. Yeah, guys. Cares. Like, <laughs> yeah, if I can get into med school, you guys can definitely get into it. <laughs> you know, and this is kind of like a weird segue for the listeners. Like, guys, I had a, a rough GPA coming out yeah. of undergrad. I took a, a two years, almost three years of um, gap years where I did a master's in Tulane. And then I taught at Valencia for a year. Actually, oh, wow. Yeah, I taught at Valencia College uh, for a year. But, you know, that, you know, it took me three years until I really graduated, almost four to get into that school. I took the MCAT three multiple times. Just you got to keep at it, guys. Yeah. I can't stress enough how much part of the application process is just. Just grit and resilience. and Absolutely. And I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but like. It really is. Even just, and, and Alexia, you'll, you, you know this, just filling out your secondaries. Like, that <laughs> is a, it's painful. And uh, like Sarah, like submitting application materials, like it's a lot. Yeah. So I really, be kind to yourself and know that it's it's a marathon. So keep at yeah. it. Keep your head up. Keep your heart strong. Keep at it. It's not a sprint. There yeah, is be kind. sprinting be here. Be kind to yourself. And you have the rest of your life to be a doctor. Exactly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I tell a lot of 
Like, what's the <laughs> difference between being a 30-year-old health professional or a 29-year-old health professional? They're both healthcare professionals. Exactly. Yeah. And be kind to yourself, guys. You'll get there. And the last one was, yeah, I worked in Haiti on and off for five years. So, one, so of the, cool. one of the reasons I didn't do so well in my classes is <laughs> because I would go to Haiti twice a year uh, doing volunteering. Like um, we built a clinic in southeastern Haiti. Wow. In, uh, it's a village called Montreal. And we would take a group of Haitian medical students, American medical anthropology students, as well as American uh, pre-medical students and medical students to this clinic. And we would provide services there for with working with Haitian physicians and with the approval of the Haitian Department of Health. Uh, we would do medical clinics there for about a week, every two years, uh, no, twice a year. So I was there a lot. I was there maybe, I've been there maybe 12 times now. Maybe I should have studied a little more, but it was really, <laughs> uh, it really well. It just seems like the experiences were definitely more memorable. Oh yeah, no Orgo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can always retake Orgo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you do that through UCF? I did. There's a group there. Well, it, it was two groups that really came together. It was the Department of Anthropology, specifically the Department of Medical Anthropology, with the guidance of Dr. Joanna Mistel, which is one oh, cool. of my medical anthropology mentors. And then with a group called International Medical Outreach, which is a NGO that works through the University of Central Florida to set up these clinics in South, uh, Southern Haiti. Wow. Southeastern Haiti. That's so cool. Yeah. Some well, of the best experiences in my life were in that island. So I owe it a lot. Oh, wow. Your story, Andres, is amazing. <laughs> You're just like, so remarkable and inspiring and no guys I, I'm, I'm serious like you even you. made me a little interested in pediatric oncology cognitive dissonance i'm experiencing right now <laughs> you could do pediatric surgical oncology yeah oh my god really yeah that's a yes yeah, we, these kids okay are, yeah. wait <laughs> i actually don't know what field of surgery i want to do i just know i just like found thoracic and orthopedics very interesting but i'm like open so Thank you for inspiring. No, yeah. Surgery has a lot of, uh, there's a lot to look at. Yeah. Uh, so keep an open mind. You never know. I will. Definitely. Well, well, just wanted to say thank you again for joining us on the yeah, podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, guys, no, I'm I'm honored to be here. And I, I'm really grateful for the work you guys are doing for pre-medical students and pre-health students. This is how we get more people into the pipeline. And this is how we... Yeah, We make our field more diverse and I'm grateful for what you're doing. Thank you so much. And if you have any recommendations for other speakers in the podcast, let us know. <laughs> oh, I will. Yeah, I'll reach out for sure. Awesome. This podcast was produced by Ari Rosenthal, Lorelai Edmonds, and Aditi Galande. You can find our conference on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at National Pre-Health Community or MPHC 2020. You can also find our pod on Instagram at the Prehealth Pod. This pod Don't forget to register for MPHC 2023, July 26th to 28th, which is coming up very soon. It's next week, you guys. There's like no spots available, so you should totally do it. Very limited. At www.nationalprehealthcom.org. That's C-O-N-F.org. And please like, leave a review, and tell one friend if you liked our podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next Monday.